Well, I frequently say that sometimes there's no better way to learn more about Christianity, learn about what you believe than when you're faced with challenges, when you have to explain it to someone who disagrees and maybe is going to push back. And so learning about other religions not only is the first goal of today's conversation to to know more about Christianity, to know more about the religion and really dive deep into what we believe and how it compares. But secondly, the goal that I have here in the conversation today is to to learn how to live out the Christian view, right? If we are Christian ambassadors, as Second Corinthians 5.20 talks about, and we are God's mouthpiece to our world. And there's a 1.5 billion Muslims in the world that do not know Christ and are not saved then we should love them. Our hearts should break for them. And, and we should want to learn more about what they believe so that we can better engage with them. And so that is the conversation that we're going to be having today as we learn about Islam and then learn how to better engage our neighbor, our friend, our coworker who is a Muslim. And we do this because here on this channel, I'm my goal is to help us know Christianity, to defend and explain Christianity, as well as to faithfully live it out. And my name is Ryan Polly. And so joining me to have this conversation on Islam, how to learn about Islam and then engage our Muslim friends is Alan Schleeman. Alan, thanks for coming on and joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ryan. Absolutely. So Alan is a speaker and an author with Stand to Reason. You've been doing that for quite some time. And as what was popped up here in the corner just a moment ago is you've written an ambassador's guide to Islam. And so uh, Alan is a great resource. Stand to Reason is a great resource as I am a, I'm a uh, affiliate of Standard Reason as well. And so it's good to have you on and to continue talking about what Standard Reason does and what you're doing with them. So anyways, uh, in this conversation uh, that we're going to be having today, um, now you've you've traveled the world. Uh, you do a lot of teaching in kind of Muslim countries, right? In, in Egypt and other countries that you've kind of taught. And so I'm kind of curious to, first to kind of hear your experience as kind of what's brought you into this. Uh, and then as we, and how you've engaged with it. And then Moving from that, kind of why the Christians who just tuned in, why we should be watching this, why should we care about Islam? Yeah, well, after September 11th, I think a lot of Americans began wondering about Islam and asking the question like, hey, what do, what do we know about this religion? Like, what should we think about this, these people? And even for Christians as well, that was, a, that was an important question. And so standard reason, I remember thinking, uh, was thinking like, okay, we need to have someone who can specialize in this topic. And so uh, they sort of asked me to do it partly because my family is from the Middle East. I'm um, 100% ethnically Assyrian. So that's not Syrian, but Assyrian, which is a very ancient people group. And so my parents were born and raised in Iraq and Baghdad. My brother was born there. Uh, they fled back in the 60s. So I grew up mostly in the States. But uh, I think that was the reason why um, Standard Reason was like, man, we need somebody to kind of focus in on this. Could it be you? You know, <laughs> would you, would you really study more on this? You seem uh, like the right fit. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so I said, yeah, so sure. So um, even though I had a little bit of an understanding about it, just partly based on the fact that my all my family and relatives are Middle Eastern and, um, you know, we still have family in, in Iraq today. Um, over the years, my dad has traveled to the Middle East. Uh, many of his coworkers have come from the Middle East over to the States. We visit with them. We spend time with them. Um, so it's just kind of been a, a, a natural thing for us to uh, know Muslims. Um, but uh, on top of that, uh, and this is something that you were kind of touching on at the beginning, um, I, I think it's important for all Christians, not just you know people who have a Middle Eastern background, to know and understand Islam because as you said, there's like 1.5 billion Muslims in the world. That, 
That's like one in five people on the planet is a Muslim. That's it's a lot of Muslims. Yeah. And so they represent the largest unreached people group on the planet. And these are people who um, who are sincere in their beliefs about, uh, you know, Islam, but of course are mistaken. You know, I mean, they don't know the truth. They don't know the gospel. And so I think as believers, we have an obligation to at least have an understanding of, of what is their their faith convictions and how to best understand it and then how to best uh, reach out to them with the truth, with the gospel. Yeah, and I think that's so important because, I mean, <sighs> Muslims are so uh, so widespread. Uh, they're everywhere. At the same time, maybe there's a lot of Christians watching. Like, I, I don't know any. Um, you know, so what? I guess what 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 should be their role? Like, do are we saying here like, hey, you need to go out and find some Muslims to talk to? Are we saying that you need to be prepared and know this so that if a Muslim does come into your life, then you're ready? Uh, what what's kind of our challenge here? What would you say? How would you challenge the person who's listening here if they're saying, I don't, I don't currently know any Muslims that yes, they're popular, they're all over, but not around me? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's it could be either one of those or both. I mean, so there could be there, there's people who once they begin to understand something about Islam or, or talk to some Muslims, they're like, wow, this is really an amazing opportunity. I really have a heart for this. Maybe God puts it on their heart to have a love and a passion for reaching Muslims. So that certainly could be the case. Um, it's also the case as kind of you were sharing with me uh, before we went live uh, about how you never know when somebody might move into your neighborhood uh, or become a classmate of yours or a coworker who is a Muslim. And then now all of a sudden you will be prepared to be able to engage them in some sort of thoughtful way. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be a scholar in Islam, but it, it's good to know something about it uh, so that you can leverage what you know to be more effective at communicating with them. I think so, that's so I mean, good. There's a couple of things that might be going on. I mean, it, it could be that, yeah, you have a passion for it, or it could just be that you run into people who who are Muslims. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's good because, you know, just like the other day uh, I, I was mentioning to you and the reason why kind of this conversation was started and why I called contacted you is that I was at Irvine Spectrum, a, a big outdoor mall for those who don't know Southern California and come around the corner and there's like a table set up and a Muslim sitting at the table giving away free Qurans. And uh, of course I went over and I, I got my free Quran. And yeah. but uh, he wanted to have a conversation, right? He doesn't want to just give it out. And, sure. uh, and but as I'm talking to him, we got into a conversation and, and I told him like, look, I've studied Islam. I again, um, I have the life of Muhammad. We'll talk about this maybe oh, yeah. here in a little bit. Um, I read this. I've, I've bookmarked it. I, I know this well. This is authoritative work for Muslims. And and I've read it. And, and so I told him I've read this. Um, I, I've studied Islam. And and so he started to engage with me. But after a few minutes, he other people showed up at his table. And whether he thought they were easier to talk to or whether, I don't know why, but he's like, okay, I have someone else. I have to, I have to go talk. And it made yeah. me kind of stop and think, how many Christians would be able to answer some of the challenges that he presented? Mm -hmm. um, how many yeah. could stand and defend Jesus? Because the first thing he did was went after the divinity of Jesus. And so really that's like, you, you know... <sighs> They're not in your neighborhood. Maybe they're not at your work, but you could run into them. And again, do you uh, stand up and, and, and share Christ? And do you do have a conversation or do you say, oh, that's the Muslim at the table. Let me just walk by and act like I'm not really there. Now, I'm curious as well, though, with that, would you say like, hey, Christians, you should go up to that table and engage the Muslim in a conversation. If you don't and you just walk on by and ignore it, there's something wrong. Like, I don't think we'd go that <laughs> far. But what would you say is the Christian responsibility if if there is kind of a similar situation uh, where they have a chance to engage with the Muslim? 
Well, I think the responsibility uh, goes to uh, uh, goes back to a verse that you mentioned at the beginning, Second uh, Corinthians five uh, twenty, and uh, which where where the Bible and specifically the Apostle Paul tells us something about our identity and our mission. Okay, so um, actually, I actually think I have it right here. Actually, um, right, Paul says. Um, uh, God has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making his appeal through us. And so I think based on that passage, it, it kind of spells out what our responsibility it is. Number one is to recognize that our identity is that we are an ambassador for Christ. And what that means is we represent Jesus in everything that we do and we say. And so we have to recognize that we are ambassadors for Christ to all people, including Muslims, right? And then the second thing that that verse, I think, points out is not just about what our identity is, but also our mission. And the word that Paul uses there multiple times is the word reconcile or reconciliation. And of course, that word means to uh, bring back together or to make peace uh, with two, two parties. And the two parties that Paul and the Bible has in mind here is that you have God and you have the world. And these two parties are enemies of each other. Right. Paul says, however, you, Christian, have been reconciled to God. You've been made at peace with God. And so you are no longer an enemy of God. You are like a friend of God. And so since you have been reconciled, it is now your mission to proclaim that same message of reconciliation to the rest of the world who is not reconciled to God. And so when you think about those two things, then our identity as ambassadors for Christ and our mission to proclaim the message of reconciliation, that should um, help us to see what our responsibility is. And that is to be a representative of Christ to people who don't know Christ and to communicate the message of reconciliation to them. And so when we think about that in the, in the context of Islam or of Muslims, we should think of it as, Hey, look, we're ambassadors for Christ to Muslims and our, and our mission should be to help them to understand the, the pardon that God is offering them through Christ. So, Uh, Yeah, to the best of your ability, when you have the opportunity to represent Jesus to a Muslim, by all means, I think you should take it. But that's not just to Muslims. It's to anybody, you know, anybody who's not reconciled to God. Yeah. So it's not that we're just targeting Muslims. It's we're we're realizing our role is to be um, a part of God's plan to reconcile the world, no matter who that person is. Yeah, that's a wonderful encouragement. And even just kind of came in in the live chat uh, from SlamRN talking about, you know, the Muslims really see the Trinity kind of as a stumbling block, as well as kind of what they go after. And uh, the Muslim at, at Triangle Square, uh, or yeah, at, or no, at the Irvine Spectrum, um, said the right. same thing to me of like, well, you believe that there's only one God, right? Yes. And you believe Jesus is God, right? Yes. And he goes, one plus one plus one equals. And I just stopped him. I said, hold on. No, no, we got to take a step back. Now, um, now, because of that, understanding the Trinity is important. We'll talk about that a little bit in this show, but I want to let you all know that Fred Sanders is like an expert on the Trinity. Because of this, I contacted him and he will be coming on the show most likely in the beginning of December. So we're still clarifying a specific date, but uh, if that's something that you're interested in, subscribe and f- keep following because there's going to be an in-depth conversation on the Trinity and divinity of Jesus. Now, um, as you kind of mentioned that, um, 
I think we also need to kind of start by looking at kind of the Christian's overall attitude towards Muslims, um, because uh, the comment came in. And I think that uh, you would maybe agree with this. See what you think. Uh, Zia Hassan, thank you for sending this in, said Muslims are very zealous about their ideology, but super stubborn to learn about the gospel and but love to engage in conversation if you show them that you're interested in learning Islam. So how have you seen uh, this engagement, I guess, by Muslims desiring to have these conversations? Yeah, I, I totally agree with that um, that comment that Zia is making. Um, I remember when I first started witnessing the Muslims, I drove to a neighborhood in, um, it's kind of on the border of LA and Orange County. I can't remember where specifically, but it's like off the 405 in Brookhurst. And um, I was like, okay, I got to find some Muslims to talk to. So I drove to this neighborhood because there's a large population of Muslims there. I remember I, I pulled into this like strip mall area where there's a bunch of restaurants and I could tell that these were probably places frequented by Muslims because the script was in Arabic, you know, like the language, you know, the, the, the wording of the restaurants and so on and so forth. So um, I, I'm looking around for somebody to talk to. I see these two guys that kind of looked like me and I thought, oh, they must be Muslims, <laughs> right? So they're about to walk into this restaurant. I walk up to them. I stopped them before they walked in. I said, excuse me. I said, are you guys Muslims? Now, this was just a few years after 9-11. So I remember them kind of looking a little suspicious because they were nervous about, you know, whether people are profiling them or, you know, oh, are yeah, angry. For sure. But eventually they kind of they said, they said, yeah, we're Muslims. Why? I said, oh, great. I said, hey, I, I'm a Christian. I said, would you like to talk about God and Jesus in the Bible? And they looked at me and said, sure. Yeah. Hey, why don't you come inside and join <laughs> us? So I'm like, oh, OK, great. So we sit down. We start chatting about God and Jesus in the Bible, and we're like wrestling with these topics. And of course, we didn't agree on everything. Um, but at the end of that, like hour or so, I was like, well, I got to get going because my, my wife's probably wondering where I am, you know, so on and so forth. <laughs> so I get up and I start to um, get my, my money to pay for my part of the meal. And as I did that, they stopped me and they said, no, 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 stop. They said, put your money away. It's not good here. We insist on paying for your part of the meal. Hmm. Now, I want you to contrast that experience with what would have happened had I gone up to, uh, if I'd gone to a mall, a U.S. mall, walked up to two average Americans and said to them, excuse me, I'm a Christian. Would you like to talk about God and Jesus in the Bible? No, thanks. Like, well, what you yeah, no, thanks. Or, <laughs> or get lost, freak. You know, like, and, but see, this tells us something about the nature of Muslims. They love to talk about God and religion and the Bible and Jesus and so on and so forth. And so starting a conversation with a Muslim is like starting a conversation uh, with uh, an American about, about sports. Hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like virtually effortless. You just start it and it goes. And so just like that comment was saying, like, I think we should take advantage of this wide open opportunity we have to talk to a group of people who are typically very comfortable talking about their faith and their religious convictions. And as kind of you've alluded to also, Ryan, it also gives us an opportunity to kind of know what we believe because they're gonna push back on what we believe. Yeah. And it's gonna challenge us to better understand our own theology and go back and say, man, why do I believe in the Trinity? Why do I think the Bible's not corrupted? Which we should probably get to at some point because this is also a very common objection. Yeah. But it'll challenge you to then think more carefully about your own faith so you'll be more grounded and more convicted about it. Yeah. So it's like a win-win. They're totally open to talking about it. It's good for us to have that engagement. 
it challenges us to learn more about our own faith. So that's why I say it's it's a great opportunity. And like that person was saying, um, yes, they are stubborn um, when it comes to you know accepting Christ, but they're also very open and curious and eager to talk about faith and religious matters, which typically other um, groups of people do not or are not. Yeah. Yeah. So how would that then compare? Because I, I think, and I don't want to like completely generalize here, but like how, how, how would that compare to the openness and eagerness to talking about faith with Christians? Like, I feel like we can say like they're very open and they desire to talk about these things, but then sometimes it's the Christian and it's like, no, maybe I'm not comfortable. Um, do you find that Christians are generally uncomfortable talking about their faith or, uh, or is that kind of, no, that, that's not as many Christians as, as not. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we're nervous to talk to, to Muslims or we're nervous. I, I don't know. What, what do you think it is? Well, yeah. So in the context of a Muslim, I think, and a, yeah, you're right. This is a generality. And I, and I only have my, you know, my own experience to go on here, which is training other Christians to do it. But um, I would say that a lot of Christians, because they have a lot of um, stereotypes about Muslims, they get nervous about it. Hmm. Um, so for example, I know a lot of women say to me, oh, you know, I saw this Muslim girl at the store, at the grocery store, and you know, she was wearing a hijab and they feel sometimes intimidated by the fact that these women are dressed in a certain way. And they're always asking me, they'll say, Alan, is it okay if I approach them and talk to them? And I'm like, absolutely. Yeah. Like usually what you'll find is that once you open up and, and say something and, you know, talk to them, they're very friendly, you know? Now, a couple of qualifications here, I'll say, and that is, I'm not suggesting that men should go up and start talking to Muslim women because typically kind of cross-gender conversations um, uh, with strangers isn't always welcome, especially if they come from some, you know, Middle Eastern background. Um, uh, and and it, can, it can be interpreted as like you're hitting on them or something mm. like that. So if you're a guy, I'm not saying go up to talk to girls, you know, who are Muslim. That's good. <laughs> That's good. It's not necessarily looked uh, um, well upon, but but for the girls who see another girl, you know, I'd say sure, go ahead. And if you're a guy, see another guy. By absolutely all means, you should talk to them. They typically are fairly receptive and open to it. In fact, I take Christian students all the time. We do these um, Muslim immersion trips where we'll go to these neighborhoods. And after spending a couple of days training these Christian students about Islam, we go and we engage, you know, Muslims in the street, like literally walking up to strangers saying, hey, you know, we're Christians and, you know, I, I can tell you're a Muslim. Hey, we'd love to just talk to you about Jesus. You know, what do you think? And they're like, yeah, sure. You know, now, mm -hmm. are there exceptions? Sure. Some will say no. But by and large, I think they're very, very open to that. And so I think when a Christian is... Um, has some knowledge about Islam and just some basic tactics of engagement and, and know a direction where to go in, go towards in a conversation that the Christian then becomes more comfortable talking about their faith. Yeah. But yes, I agree with you that for the most part, I think a lot of Christians feel a little bit uneasy talking to Muslims because they have some stereotypes about them. Maybe they're all jihadis, you know, yeah. uh, maybe they all hate Americans or something like that. That's probably mistaken. Yeah. And so they feel hesitant, you know, yeah. but again, once we teach them something about Islam, I take these people to, I take these Christians to mosques, for example, we go inside, we engage the Muslims there. I tend to find that Christians find that 
these people are very much sort of normal people who they can feel comfortable talking to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's good. And that's kind of really the two encouragements that I wanted to give here in kind of our introduction is like, the, you know, the need for Christians to get out and sp- spread the gospel. Like that's what we're called to do. And sometimes we can, and this is true of myself as well, tend to, you know, continue in my comfortable way of living and, oh, it's difficult to get out and talk to those people and, and kind of ne- needing to re- recognize the need to get out and be ambassadors of Christ. Uh, but then secondly, recognizing uh, this people group that, that we should love and care for and that are not just evil and, and, and that we can have conversations with, but also realizing when we don't know our own faith and when we don't know the, the beliefs and the worldview that people we're talking to, that makes us very un, uncomfortable. And so the better we understand Christian faith, the better we understand what they believe, the more comfortable we are in having these conversations and why I want to encourage Christians to be more grounded in what they believe. And so getting into some of the beliefs of Islam, and then we're finishing off the conversation with the kind of the practical tips on engaging Muslims and what to do and what not to do. Um, but now kind of our second part of looking at beliefs. Um, we often hear about the five pillars. So what would you say is important for Christians to understand and know about the five pillars of Islam? So um, Islam can be divided really into behaviors and beliefs. So um, they have required behaviors, things they must do, and they also have required beliefs, things they must believe. So the five pillars of Islam are required behaviors, things they're supposed to do. And um, uh, so just real quickly, the the five are, are reciting the creed which is simply a creed that says there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. Um, there's there's daily prayer. Uh, there's the fast of Ramadan, which is a one month long fast where uh, they abstain from um, smoking, drinking, eating, uh, and sex during the daylight hours. Okay, so it's a month long fast. And the whole purpose of that fast is to commemorate um, Muhammad, who they believe is their, is their prophet, uh, receiving the Quran from um, the angel Gabriel. Uh, and then uh, they have to give alms. So have to give some of their income towards the poor and needy and then follow uh, or perform a pilgrimage to the city of Mecca at least once in their life. So the significance, I think, what's important for us as Christians to understand is just to have some sense of what those things are. Because uh, as that commenter noted, when you demonstrate that you have some understanding of Islam, this oftentimes gets the Muslim very excited. They're like, oh, wow, you've like, you know something about me, you know, because their perception is, is that Americans just come to them and, and even Christians come to Muslims with all these preconceived and mistaken notions about who they are and what they want to do. And they haven't taken the time to really try to understand them. And I think it's yeah. a very respectful and honoring thing to do, which is to say, hey, look, I have studied something about your religion and I understand the five pillars. And I, that's, that's kind of cool, you know. Um, I'd also add that for, for, and this is important as we get later to how to engage Muslims and what's the appropriate approach to take, I think it's important for Christians to realize that for the Muslim, they have a, a meritorious based system of salvation, meaning how they get into heaven is based on merit or their deeds or good and bad deeds. And so they believe that as you go about life, you perform good deeds or you perform bad deeds. And at the end of time, um, all your good and bad deeds will be put on a scale and you'll be judged according to those deeds. And that's what will determine whether you go to heaven or to hell. 
And so for the Muslim, you know, to, to do those five pillars, to follow those five things is important because it earns them credit or favor in God's eyes because they're obeying Allah. And that's that's significant for them. And so yeah. that's why it's important for us to understand those five pillars, what they are and what they mean for the Muslim. Yeah, and it's such a when it's when it's wrapped up in salvation, right? I think you know Christians, you know, we we understand like the the issues that are salvation based issues that we are going to offend with a lot more kind of enthusiasm than the issues where it's like, yeah, we can agree to disagree on that because it's not as important. And so, really, when you're talking about these five pillars, you're not talking about these these side issues that are not as relevant. Like this is salvation based. And again, it's so true in what you talked about of showing that you have some understanding. When I when I told the Muslim at at the Irvine Spectrum that I had this book and I had read the whole thing uh his eyes just lit up and it's like wow you have oh my goodness what did you think and and he just wanted to know because how many people would you would you meet that have read this thick ryan most muslims have not read that (laughs) i had to for class yeah and and by the way the reason what that is by the way the life of muhammad is it's basically his it's the earliest extant biography that we have of muhammad right and so that and and so and that's I don't know if we'll get into this later, but the reason why that's significant is because how Muhammad lived in his day is authoritative for Muslims today. And so that that is that book and and how he that which describes how he lived is authoritative for Muslims, you know. Yeah. So that's why it's significant. But yeah. Most, would you most Muslims I talk to have not read that book? Yeah. So would you? Is there any comparison here, just to kind of make sense of this for a Christian, of like relating this to like similar to like the Gospels, of like those are the earliest authoritative source we have for the life of Jesus, and because Jesus is our guide, is God, we want to live like Jesus. We read the Gospels to understand how Jesus lived and how we should live as well. And so this being very similar for a Muslim, of this is the life of Muhammad, the earliest authoritative source on how he lived. You read this to figure out what he did and what you should do as well. Would that be an accurate comparison? Yeah, exactly. The only the, the significant difference, though, would be that for the Gospels, we um, that is part of the Bible, which is the inspired word of God. Correct. Uh, for the Muslim, that uh, that book or or Muhammad's biography in general, how he lived, it's called the Sunnah. That is not considered to be on par with the Quran. It's below right. the Quran in terms of authority. So the Quran, they believe, is the literal words of Allah, not the inspired words, but the literal words of Allah. And that has the highest authority. The Sunnah or his life example is below that in authority. So yeah. that's just one important difference that we would have. Good. And now you just stressed a, a difference, a distinction. You talked about the literal words of Allah in the Quran versus the Bible being the inspired words of God. Uh, what What is that difference there? Can you help kind of spell that out for those listening if they don't understand yeah, you made yeah, that so clear the, distinction? Right. So the, the doctrine of inspiration says that God through the Holy, the Holy Spirit, that is, um, inspired human authors to write down things uh, that we were, we are eventually what's in the Bible today. Um, and what they wrote down is precisely what God intended them to write down. So God uses human authors, their personality, their language, their context, their style, and all that stuff to write down stuff. And what they write down is exactly what God intended them to write down. So this is what we call the doctrine of inspiration. Right. God inspired human authors to write. That's not what Muslims believe about the Quran. What they would say the Quran is, is the literal words of Allah, which means they believe the Quran is a book that exists in heaven with Allah. And the contents of that book was dictated 
word for word by the angel Gabriel to a man named Muhammad over a 22-year period. Okay? And so um, during those 22 years, this, this angel Gabriel appears to Muhammad, communicates various verses and passages of the Quran. He memorizes them, and eventually he passes on that to other people. So that's why they say it's the literal words of Allah. It's not the inspired word of God. That's good. Now, the 22-year period, uh, Muhammad was born in 570, and then the 22-year yes. period was from 610 to 632. Is that right off the top of my head? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and he died, yeah, he dies in 632, yes. Okay. Um, so 610 to 632 is that 22-year period where he's being given, allegedly, <laughs> revelations of the Quran. And then once he dies in 632, then um, that's kind of the end of the Quran. Okay. Yeah. Now, you mentioned uh, here that we have the life of Muhammad as part of the Sunnah. It is not the, the literal words of God, but it's considered authoritative. Uh, how does the Sunnah relate to what maybe other people have probably heard of is the Hadith? Yeah. So the Hadith are um, simply written traditions about what Muhammad either said or approved of. So, for example, uh, suppose one day Muhammad is, uh, you know, walking around in, in Saudi Arabia and someone comes up to him and says, Muhammad, uh, there's some men over there praying, but there's some dogs not too far away who are barking and it's just distracting. What, what should we do? And so Muhammad might say, look, whenever we have men praying, we should make sure there's no dogs, you know, for, you know, 50 yards, you know, keeping 50 yards away or something like that. Right. So some would say, oh, OK, good idea. Well, those people who were told that by Muhammad would remember that eventually over time it would be written down uh, and be put into a section of, of writing that's pertaining to prayer. OK, now Muhammad answered questions or spoke about a whole host of subjects, prayer, fasting marriage, fighting, divorce, um, you know, everything. And so everything that he spoke on has been categorized by subject and put into what's called hadith, which are these written traditions. Some of them might be a sentence long, some might be paragraphs long, and they contain things that Muhammad said or approved of. Okay, so that is also similar in authority, in authority to the sunnah, right? Uh, in that it's not as it's not it's not the word of Allah, right? It's not it's not the Quran. It's below that, uh, but it's still extremely authoritative. And here's why: the Quran provides um, a lot of broad principles, but it doesn't give a lot of details to things. And so the Hadith gives a lot of those practical mm -hmm. details. So the Quran, for example, might command you to fight, but the Hadith will tell you who to fight, when to fight, when to start, when to stop. The Quran might command you to pray, but the Hadith will tell you how to pray, when to pray, when to start, when to stop, what to do before prayer, what to do after prayer. You know, so the the Hadith gives very practical applications to the broad principles that are found in the Quran. That's and if you're familiar with Sharia law, Sharia law is simply a, a term for Islamic law that is instituted or implemented in various Muslim countries. You know, civil laws and criminal laws. Well. Where do they get those ideas for what those laws would be? They get them from Hadith. Because Hadith, again, has very practical applications to the broad principles that are in the Quran. And so they can use them to create Sharia laws found in these Islamic countries. 
That's good. Um, now, Zia is helping us out again, giving us another kind of difference here as she writes uh, another big difference between the Gospels, uh, Christian Gospels and the life of Muhammad. Uh, this not, you know, this book right here is uh, the first book of the Gospels came about um, <clears throat> 20 or so years after the life of Jesus. Right. Uh, and there's a lot of eyewitnesses. We have the creed in First Corinthians 15 that talks about uh, the, really the core of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus coming within five years of Jesus's resurrection right. um, versus uh, what Zia is saying here is that the earliest of Muhammad's biography came about 200 years after his death. So this is the earliest written authoritative biography on Muhammad's life, but it's coming 200 or so years after Muhammad died. And the same so. would be true of Hadith literature. In fact, I have a whole thing on oral tradition and a whole video on oral tradition um, of the Hadith, because that also like, you know, that was compiled much, you know, hundreds of years later as well. So um, that raises a whole bunch of questions in it of itself. But yeah, that would be a significant difference. Good. Awesome. Okay, so now one of the big important uh, beliefs of Islam is is the idea of believing that there is only one God, right? This is the first thing the guy at the Irvine Spectrum challenged me with was, do you believe there's only one God and what about Jesus? Um, and you often hear this idea of Christians and Muslims, do we worship the same God? And so uh, how can you kind of help us understand the similarities as well as the differences uh, in the belief in monotheism, that there is only one God? Um, well, so are you specifically wanting me to address that in the context of whether we whether we're talking about the same god or not or or well are you just i'm just saying like you might hear and a christian might say well i've heard that muslims are monotheists and christians are monotheists too and they believe yeah. in god and we believe in god and so how can we reconcile this difference of of both being monotheistic faiths yeah yeah okay so um yes both christians <laughs> and muslims and jews for that matter believe that there is only one god uh, what's unique in Christianity is that we believe that the scriptures, the Bible teaches um, that there is one God, but that Jesus is God, the Father is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and that these three persons are separate persons. Okay, So in other words, the, we believe the scriptures teach that there is one being who is God who coexists as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, And that's, of course, the, the doctrine we, we call that is the Trinity. And we believe that's what scripture teaches. Uh, and so therefore we just say, okay, well, if scripture teaches that, let's just give it a name. We'll call it the Trinity. Okay. Um, Muslims vigorously reject that. In fact, uh, there is a chapter in the Quran, chapter 112, which is a chapter that specifically says there is only one God and rejects the notion of the Trinity. And that's because perhaps the most foundational doctrine in Islam, the most important um, aspect of theology in, in Islam is um, this first, what's called article of faith, which is the belief in the unity of God. And this, this teaching simply says there is only one God and this one God exists as one person. So they don't believe in a Trinitarian God. They believe in a Unitarian God. In fact, this doctrine is so significant that if you violate this doctrine, if you believe, for example, that Jesus is also divine, then you are violating this doctrine and you are committing what's called the sin of shirk. And the sin of shirk is an unpardonable sin. Meaning if you've committed shirk and you die and have not repented of it, you are guaranteed to go to hell, right? Do not pass go, do not collect 200. <laughs> go <directly to> <laughs> um, it's, it's super serious, right? Yeah. So um, that, that kind of illustrates how serious they take this idea of the Unitarian nature of God, versus our notion 
which is not really our notion, but the biblical notion of the Trinitarian notion of God. Yeah, and this, again, is, is so important because going back to, again, my conversation at Durbin Spectrum, right? The, the, as soon as he says, do you believe in one God? I said, yes. And he says, do you believe Jesus God? I said, yes. He says, one, two, three, one plus one plus one equals three. You have a problem. And I said, hold on a second. Uh, let's talk about the Trinity. I think there's some misconceptions here. Uh, he kind of stopped me and said, well, do you know what the greatest sin in Islam is? And I said, yeah, sure. It's, it's putting anything on an equal playing as God. And he said, absolutely. And then it was like, pretty much like, that's what you're doing. You're putting yeah. Jesus on equal playing field as God. And so understanding the the way in which they view God and not equating Jesus to God, that is that is the biggest sin that you can make. And it's important uh, if we're having these conversations to understand how serious they view what Christians are doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, so then maybe let's, okay, so there's kind of the view of God. So then how do they view Jesus? Uh, if obviously this is a big difference, a big distinction of, of yeah. we say Jesus is God, we believe in the Trinity. What is their view of Jesus? Well, one of their, so I mentioned the six articles of faith, which are required, um, uh, beliefs in Islam. One of their required beliefs besides belief in the unity of God is the belief in God's prophets. So they believe that Allah has appointed hu certain human beings to be prophets of Allah. And typically, these prophets are also given some type of revelation. So um, what's, what's interesting about this particular doctrine is that many characters in the Bible turn out to be um, prophets of law. So like David, as in King David, was a prophet of law, or Moses, or, or um, Jesus even is considered to be a prophet of law. So what this means is that Muslims are required to believe in Jesus. Now, it's important to recognize that they don't believe in the biblical version of Jesus. They, their view of Jesus has a, is a, has a much lower Christology. So they don't believe he's the son of God. They don't believe he's part of the Trinity. Um, they also don't believe that he was crucified because the Quran says he wasn't. And so if he wasn't crucified, he couldn't have been resurrected. And if he didn't die and rise again, he can't atone for sins. So there are some significant differences about the uh, 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 from, of the biblical Jesus from the version of Jesus that they believe in. But what's significant here is they're required to believe in him. Now, what's interesting is if you read the Quran, which is their highest authority in Islam, it turns out the Quran actually has a fairly high view of Jesus that, that I would say actually not only surprises Christians, it sometimes surprises Muslims as well, right? Because the Quran specifically teaches that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. It specifically teaches that um, his birth was announced by angels. The Quran teaches that Jesus lived a sinless and perfect life. The, the Quran identifies Jesus as the Messiah. The Quran teaches that Jesus was able to heal the sick and to raise the dead. And the Quran even affirms that Jesus, at the end of his life, was taken up to be in the presence of Allah, and he is even the appointed one to return at the end of time to uh, kill the Antichrist, to break all the crosses, and to kill all the pigs. So this is really significant that, that the Quran has this very significant role and, and, and emphasis on who Jesus is and actually names him far more times than it even names Muhammad. Okay. And what's interesting is when you contrast what the Quran says about Jesus Muhammad, the Quran does not attribute any significance to his birth. He had an ordinary birth. 
It doesn't call Muhammad the um, the Messiah. It doesn't say he was sinless. It doesn't attribute miracles to him. And according to the Quran, Muhammad's been dead and buried in Saudi Arabia for the last 1400 years. And he's not the appointed one to return. So what this tells me is we have tremendous freedom to talk to our Muslim friends and neighbors about Jesus because he's frequently talked about in the Quran and has a very high status in the Quran. Again, granted, it's not as high as the biblical or true version of Jesus, but it's still got a, he still has a very high status. And so we have freedom to talk about him, which is awesome because, of course, he's the, he's the center of our faith, right? Yeah. He's, a, he's the object of our faith. Now, when the Christian kind of brings up saying, hey, well, here's a true picture of Jesus. Here's what scripture has to say, right? You mentioned in, in Surah 4, verses 157, this idea that we killed the Messiah, Jesus. So the boasting of we killed the Messiah. And then here in 4, 157, it says, um, but neither they killed him nor crucified him. It was only made to appear so. Even those who argue for this crucifixion are in doubt. They have no knowledge whatsoever, only making assumptions. They certainly did not kill him. That's a slightly different translation than I've read other places, but that's in the, the Quran that was sent to me. Um, so when a Christian says, well, hold on, like you have this awesome view of Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. But here's a right view found in the Bible, found in the Gospels. What's going to be the Muslim response to Christians using scripture, the Bible, to, to paint a view of Jesus? Their response is going to be what I would argue probably the most common objection that I hear from Muslims. Uh, so in, in the Trinity, by the way, would be, would be a close second. But their response is going to be, well, you're getting that from the Bible, which has been corrupted. Okay. Yeah, it says in the Gospels that he died and rose again. Yeah, it's, you know, you know and that's assuming they even know what the Bible says, because most Muslims don't. Most Muslims don't even know what the Quran says, by the way. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just simply saying that for the most part, most Muslims that you run into are, are nominal in name only. So they haven't read the, the Quran, let alone the Bible. Well, and that would be but, true of a lot of Christians as well, right? Most Christians are nominal in name only. Yeah, many are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying this is just a demographic, okay? Yeah. But um, what they're most likely going to say is, well, your Bible is corrupted. In fact, um, this is, as I said, the most common objection. And I would argue perhaps the most serious objection because it strikes at the core of the question of authority, right? Because the, the Muslim's going to want to say, well, the Quran is the word of Allah and the Bible's corrupted. And we're going to say, no, 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 the, the Quran is not the word of Allah, uh, the word of God. It, it, the Bible is the word of God. And so we're just going to argue back and forth about, well, who's got the true authority, right? And so to me, this is an issue that needs to be resolved, but that's the way they're going to dismiss what you say. Now, one point that we kind of didn't bring up that might follow logic or, or pre uh, logically precede what we've just been talking about is the fact that the Quran identifies four revelations from a law by name. Hmm. And this is significant. So um, the Quran identifies itself, the Quran, as a revelation from a law, but it also identifies three other divine revelations. The Zabur, which is the um, the Psalms of David, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the Pentateuch, which was a, a revelation given to Moses, and the Gospel, which they believe is a revelation given to Jesus. Okay, so this is very very fascinating that the Quran identifies the Quran, 
the, the Torah, the Psalms, and the Gospel as all true revelations from a law that are on par with each other. Now, the question that follows then is, well, wait a minute. If they identify the Gospel as a true revelation from a law, then why don't they believe in, as you mentioned, Ryan, the death and resurrection of Jesus and you know who Jesus claims to be in terms of his identity? And the answer is because they believe that all of those revelations have been corrupted except for the Quran. Only the Quran, and I can't remember the surah that says this, but it says only the Quran has remained free from corruption. Hmm. But uh, the Torah, the Psalms, the Gospel have all been corrupted. So that's the way they're going to say, oh, well, yes, you're in your Bible you got truth, but it's been corrupted. Man's wisdom and writing have mixed in with God's wisdom and writing, and now you can't tell one from the other, which is which. So that's how they're going to disqualify or dismiss your um, claims about who Jesus is and what he did. That's good. And and I, as you were sharing that, I was I was trying to find the surah, and I'm I'm not finding it. I know it's in chapter five. Um, oh, here we go. Five forty six. I thought that was the one, but I'm I didn't see it for some reason. Um, yeah. So in uh in in chapter five verse forty six it says, then in the footsteps of the prophets we sent Jesus the son of Mary confirming the Torah revealed before him. And we gave him the gospel containing guidance and light and confirming what was revealed in the Torah, a guide and a lesson to the God-fearing. So let the people of the gospel judge by what God has revealed in it. And those who do not judge by what God has revealed are truly the rebellious. And so this was actually what I quoted at uh, to the, the conversation I was having that ended our conversation is I said, but but what about the gospel? And and he said, well, what do you mean? I said, chapter five, verse 46, 46 says that Allah has sent Jesus to be the messenger and that we should judge according to what is revealed in the gospel. So why do you reject the gospels? And he went, well, these other people need to talk to me. And, and that's where the conversation ended. Um, so how can well, the Christian... Christian... You wouldn't just throw out that it's corrupted because that would be the most common response that you'd, I'd ever hear. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in short, how would you kind of say to the Christian, okay, so the Quran says that the Gospels are, are the guidance, the Torah, that Jesus was sent as this messenger. We need to guide, we need to judge things according to what is, is written there. And they say, well, it's been corrupted. What, what is a short response that a Christian, Christian can give to, to this challenge of corruption? Well, okay, so I'll, let me answer just that question per, pertaining to that particular passage that you just mentioned, and then I'll give you my broader strategy. But the quick response to that is, well, look, the the Quran right there encouraged Christians to judge by what the gospel says. If the gospel is corrupted, like the Muslim claims, then why is the Quran commanding us to judge by what it says if it's a corrupted text? Hmm. So, in other words, they are, they are they're fighting against what the Quran says, which is their highest authority. And this, by the way, Ryan, illustrates a very important principle. Um, that, that your listeners need to know, and that is this. There is a significant difference between what Muslims claim and what Islam teaches. Hmm. Muslims claim all kinds of things about the nature of Islam and about the nature of Christianity, of course, too, but mostly about the nature of Islam. But oftentimes there is a distinction between what they're claiming about Islam and what Islam actually teaches. And this is a great example of that, that verse that you just mentioned. Muslims will say, oh, the Bible's corrupted, you can't trust it. But the Quran teaches the opposite. And this goes to um, an important tactic that I like to use very frequently to, to respond to this particular objection. Because 
at the end of the day, no matter what you say, if you want to talk about profits, you have a tract, you want to talk about the gospel or whatever, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to authority. Whose authority are we going to, re we going to, are we going to accept? And of course, you know, as Christians, we accept the Bible and the, the Muslim is going to say it's corrupted. So what I like to point out is that the Quran teaches two very important um, principles that undermine the Muslim claim about our Bible being corrupted. And the first thing that the, is the Quran teaches is this. No one can change the words of a law. And uh, in the Ambassador's Guide to Islam, that green book that you showed at the beginning, I outlined this argument. But there are several, probably about a dozen passages that teach that no one can change the words of a law. The words of the law cannot be changed. It just says over and over and over in the Quran, which in some sense is not that controversial or significant, right? Like, of course, if a law revealed his word, you'd think he'd protect it. But the second aspect or the second principle that the Quran teaches is that the gospel is an example of the word of a law. Okay. So think about what logically follows from that. If the Quran teaches that no one can change the words of a law, and the, and the Quran teaches that the gospel is the word of a law, then the gospel therefore turns out to be the unchanged word of a law that can't be corrupted. So notice what this what happens then. We are now leveraging the Quran's authority to move the objection that the Bible is corrupted off the table. The Muslim cannot use it any longer because that's what they want to say. Well, you say Jesus died and rose again. That's what it says in your gospel. Or you say that Jesus claimed to be, you know, that I and the Father are one. And so that's somehow evidence for your Trinity. But that's just a corrupted text. Okay, well, you say it's corrupted, but your own Quran, your highest authority, teaches that no one can change the words of a law. The gospel is the word of a law. Therefore, the gospel is the unchanged word of a law. So basically, you know, they're trying to, they're at odds with what their own highest authority teaches. Yeah. And that's how I try to get that objection off the table so that I can go back to the gospels and see who Jesus is. Yeah. So I have a question about that objection is a, a different conversation I had with a Muslim kind of presented a response to that kind of tactic. But first, I did want to read uh, Zia Hassan again is helping us out. Thank you so much, Zia. Put in some more references and stuff for those who are following along in the live chat. Uh, one of her references was uh, chapter 18, verse 27 that says, um, recite what has been revealed to you from the book of the Lord. None can change his words, nor can you find any refuge beside him. So there's one saying none can change the yeah. words of Allah. So uh, again, it's also important to recognize and why I wanted to point out the date when this is being revealed to Muhammad between 610 and 632 AD. By that point, we have a full Bible. And so again, if, if God is giving this word to Allah, the literal words of God, or sorry, to Muhammad and saying, trust the gospels, but the Gospels are 600 years old by that point, uh, and they supposedly have already been corrupted. Then why is this being revealed saying trust a document that supposedly has been corrupted? Um, so important reason why to kind of take that step back and have an understanding of the dates and, and information. Now, um, about a year or two ago, I was I was at a youth group, uh, college age, young adult group, give, doing a Q&A, and a girl brought her Muslim friend. And so he asked a lot of questions. And we ended up going to Chick-fil-A and having like a two-hour dinner at Chick-fil-A after this youth group, uh, really going through the Quran, looking at verses. And so his response to this kind of tactic was saying, well, 
corrupting the gospel isn't literally corrupting the words of Allah, because it's like if I give a message and then I write my message down and I hand out that piece of paper and then someone takes that paper and destroys it, you didn't destroy my message. You didn't corrupt my initial message. You only corrupt, corrupted the copies of my message. And so you still have the literal uh, uncorrupted gospel. We just don't know what that gospel is because the one we have was corrupted. Um, so I don't know if you've heard this response yeah, but, before. Sure, I, I have heard the response. But, but, but Ryan, you actually just, uh, what you just stated a minute ago uh, is the response to the objection. Because as you pointed out, it was the 7th century when the Quran comes out and says, no one can change the words of Allah and the gospel is the word of Allah. Well, in the 7th century, we already had all of the Bible. In fact, 300 years before we had Codex Sinaiticus and Codex, Codex Vaticanus, which is the entire Bible already written down. And so the Quran comes around 300 years later and says, no one can change the words of Allah. Christians should judge by what it says here. You even have Muhammad in the, in the Sunnah saying, um, taking the Torah and saying, I believe in thee and him who revealed thee when he's looking at the, at the Torah. So there's all of these Quranic and uh, Muhammad references to parts of the Bible saying, I believe it, it's trustworthy, it's not corrupted. And as you pointed out, from the seventh century to today, nothing has changed in the Bible because we have exact copies of what was in the Bible when the Quran said it is not corrupted. Yeah. And in fact, we have copies of the Bible 300 years even before Muhammad was even born. And we can compare them to today. And there's nothing has been changed. So that particular objection or, or response that that Muslim brings up doesn't account for the fact, as you pointed out, the importance of the timing and the dates. It was this, you know, it was 632, let's just say, when Muhammad died, that that's when we have the Quran saying, no, this gospel, this Torah, this Psalms, these are, un these are unchanged, these are uncorrupted. All right, well, then there's nothing that's been changed since then. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's how you address it, just the very point that you were bringing up there. That's good. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, a question came in here from SlamRN asking, uh, uh, have you heard about the recent, there are holes in the narrative by a Muslim scholar, Yasir Qadi, uh, and the pushback by other Muslims? So just that there are holes in, I guess, the Christian narrative. Have you heard this objection? Is it the Christian narrative or in the Muslim or, narrative? I'm not quite sure. Maybe. Narrative by the Muslim and the pushback by other Muslims. So is it like that the that other Muslims are pushing back against the Muslim narrative? Uh, we'll get some clarification on that. And yeah, yeah, back so here just clarify that and yeah. whoever wrote that in. Because I, I mean, because there are, I mean, there are holes in the Muslim narrative as well. I mean, like, like we were kind of already alluded and, and Zia mentioned, um, there's significant amounts of time where we have no, no information about what's happened. You know, um, we don't have any third party um, sources about Muhammad's life, apart from what, you know, allegedly they claimed about him, you know, which is quite unlike what we have with Gospels, where we have third party, you know, sources like Tacitus and Jewish historians who have written about Jesus. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's, there's other things about the nature of the Quran as well that um, cast into question the reliability of what was actually been transmitted. Yeah. Okay, good. So as we kind of wait for that clarification, um, kind of coming back to, uh, kind of using what Muslims believe as well as how to respond and how to have these conversations with Christians. Um, 
what should we focus on? So you, you have that person that just moves in next door. The, the, you're, you have a new coworker that just gets hired and is Muslim. And so you now have a coworker that's Muslim or you go to a new school or whatever it is. Um, what should be the focus of a Christian uh, when we're trying to start this conversation and share the gospel with Muslims? Well, you know, it goes back to the, the passage you brought up at the very, very beginning, 2 Corinthians 5.20, that we're an ambassador for Christ in our missions to proclaim the message of reconciliation. So I would say that our what we should be focusing on is the gospel and avoiding topics or subjects that distract from the gospel. And the reason I say this is because a lot of Christians, when they when they are willing to talk to a Muslim, all that comes into their mind is like, well, you guys believe in jihad and September 11th terrorist attacks and, you know, uh, you oppress women and, you know, and, and maybe they know about Muhammad marrying you know, uh, a six-year-old when, when he was in his fifties and they're just like, you know, he's, he's, you know, a horrible person for doing that. Look, I get it. Um, I, I have studied about jihad. I've studied about Muhammad in his life. I understand all those things, but after all these years of talking to Muslims, both in the United States and in the middle East, I found that the best idea is to focus on what we're called to do as ambassadors is to proclaim the message of reconciliation, which is the gospel, and avoid conversations that distract from the gospel, like jihad, for example. And here's why. You start talking about jihad, the Muslim's going to think in their mind, okay, you know what? This Christian or this American basically thinks like everybody else, like what Hollywood thinks, that we're all a bunch of jihadis, we're all out to blow up, blow up everybody else, and we're mm. just out there to kill people, okay? And they'll this will all this will do is create you know, a, a greater wall between you and them and your relationship with them. Okay. Um, by the way, even if you were to convince them of your point about the nature of jihad, their eternal destiny would still be in jeopardy because them agreeing with us about the nature of jihad or about the, you know, Muhammad's, you know, inappropriate relationships with girls or whatever it might be, doesn't make somebody a Christian or certainly doesn't make anyone less a Muslim. Um, so this is why it's helpful. You know, make that the key um, conversation because that's what matters anyways. You know, Ch having them change their minds about these secondary issues isn't going to be um, all that great. And typically, you know, um, it'll just push you away from them because they're just going to assume that you're stereotyping them like many Americans do. Yeah, and I think that's helpful. Not only, again, in talking with Muslims, but but with anybody, I think we can easily get caught up with Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or anybody else and focusing on these really these non-essential issues of, well, why don't you celebrate birthdays and really kind of get into this conversation right. about that, where it's just like, no, let's talk about the divinity of Jesus. Let's focus on yeah. how you're saved, uh, not right. arguing about issues that really are less important. And hey, those can be fun conversations, right? So there's times where if we're in relationship with people, we can we can have these fun conversations. Why don't you eat bacon and 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 that kind of stuff? Uh, at the same time, like if you don't have a lot of opportunity, if it's a quicker conversation or initial conversation, like focus on the gospel, focus on yeah. who Jesus is. Um, all right, so we got some clarification uh, here on the question, uh, and it was holes in the Quran. And so uh, the comment here was that uh, Yasir has uh, kind of gotten himself into hot water and has Muslims up in arms by saying that there's no perfectly preserved Quran. 
uh, and kind of this idea, and I've heard this mentioned a bunch of times of, you know, the Quran is the perfectly preserved words of Allah, but then there's also claims like in the early years, there's many different versions and they actually destroyed the older versions or different versions to keep one. So uh, I guess this Muslim scholar and Hassan is helping us out as well as saying, uh, Yasir uh, Qadi from Tennessee is in hot water due to him admitting that we have different Qurans. Um, so yeah. have you heard this? And again, how would we kind of respond yeah, to this yeah, idea? Sure. Yeah, so there's a whole bunch of uh, research being done on textual criticism and, and source criticism, which is looking at like what are the sources that were used to create the Quran? You know, are there are there variants you know between different manuscripts of the Quran? Which, by the way, both of these types of criticism are leveled also against the Bible and have been for years, but only recently. And I by by recently, I mean maybe I don't know forty years, last forty years, has there been more investigation? about the, the claim as to whether the Quran that allegedly exists in heaven and that was given to Muhammad is exactly word for word, letter for letter, the same exact Quran that exists today. And that's the claim that Muslims make, which by the way, is a much bolder, much greater claim than what we as Christians make. Because although we say we have the word of God uh, in our Bibles today, we're also willing to acknowledge that there has been some manuscript variations but that these manuscript variations between different uh, manuscripts of the Bible can be resolved through textual criticism, through the, through the process of, of reconciling them. Okay, But that's not a claim that Muslims want to make about the nature of the Quran. So they have a much more bold, uh, audacious claim to make that there's absolutely no variations. Well, in 1971, I think it was, or 73, um, there were some people in Sana, Yemen, were doing some renovation work in on a mosque, and they they broke through a um, a wall and discovered some some manuscripts of some of the oldest versions of the Quran, hmm. and uh, they didn't know how to deal with them, so they hired um, a German Orientalist named Gerhard Puen, who began doing research um, into interpreting and, and and doing the investigative work on these versions of the Quran. Now, he was forced by the government of Yemen to, to kind of do like a non-disclosure agreement, you know, where he wouldn't disclose anything um, about the nature of his work. But um, that sparked some interesting investigation from other, other scholars who have discovered that actually the claim that the Quran has been perfectly preserved is not the case at all. Um, Ryan, you alluded to the fact that even the Hadith, which is, the, which is Islamic's islam's own sources say things like let no one say that you have acquired all the quran when much of it has been missing or you know there used to be this one verse but now it's not there you know we used to recite it when muhammad taught it to us but it doesn't exist anymore and there's all these like you know as the person was mentioning holes in the quran and of course holes in the narrative that the quran has been perfectly preserved so that's been that's acknowledged by islam's own sources and as we've been studying um, source criticism and textual criticism, we know that's also the case as well. So yeah, that's that's going to grow into a much bigger field now that uh, there's more freedom to investigate these questions. That's good. Thank you for helping clarify that. And so 
kind of coming back to uh, our focus should be on the gospel. Our focus should yeah. be on Jesus. Um, you know, I kind of hinted at, at this, at the challenge of the objection. And again, we're going to cover it in a few weeks with Fred Sanders coming up as the Trinity. But how would you uh, kind of maybe to give people a taste of maybe that interview coming up, but how would you respond to this challenge? If you start to share the gospel, you start to focus on Jesus and they come up with this objection of, well, one God and one God and one God, one plus one, one plus one equals three. You have three gods. Uh, do you have maybe a short response or a thought process to think through how to respond to that when if you're trying to share the gospel and the Muslim kind of uses that yeah. as a as an objection? Yeah, well, um, so my basic thought process or my basic approach is to go back to the gospel to address that. So um, so even apart from any conversation about uh, or with a Muslim, um, we at Standard Reason, we often say that the Trinity is a solution, not a problem. Okay. I think a lot of even Christian scholars or theologians or, or Christian thinkers might just think, oh, man, Trinity is kind of a problem. You know, it's you know, it says all these things that are kind of doesn't make sense and illogical. And um, I disagree. I think the Trinity is a solution, not a problem. And here's what I mean by that. The Bible gives us data about who it says is God or what the nature of God is. And as I mentioned earlier, the Bible teaches three things. Number one, it teaches that. There's only one God. Number two, it teaches that the Father is God, uh, Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And number three, it teaches that all three of those um, persons are separate persons, meaning they're unique individual persons. Okay. So the question then becomes, well, you have all of this, these three points that seem to be problematic, but in reality, what we do is we say, okay, well, what's a way to make all three of these points cohesive and fit into a logical doctrine. And that's what the Trinity is. The Trinity is an explanation of how to account for all that data. It doesn't do away with the data. It doesn't sideline the data. It says, all right, how do you um, put all that data together? Well, that's what the Trinity is. It's an explanation of the data. So I personally would point the Muslim back to the gospel where you see um, evidence for this idea. Jesus says, I and the Father are one, so on and so forth. There's a bunch of verses that I know Fred Sanders will, will, will go over, you know, and talk about these are the, this is the data points that we have uh, to demonstrate that Trinitarian thinking is a legitimate teaching of the gospel. Now, but notice what's going to happen. If I'm going to point the Muslim back to the gospel, okay, not, not the epistles of Paul, which, by the way, um, Muslims don't really like the epistles of Paul. But the gospel, which is identified in the Quran, they do believe is a true revelation. I'm going to point the Muslim to the gospel and say, look, the gospel teaches Trinitarian doctrine. Okay. And you can point to whatever verses are your favorite verses to make that point, John 1 1 or whatever. Now, they're going to be wanting to say, well, that's corrupted. You know, that's not trustworthy. And this is where you could, you could bring in that tactic where you show that the Quran actually affirms the trustworthiness and reliability of the Gospels, of the Bible. Then you can, so now that the objection that the Bible is corrupted is off the table, and you can go back to the Gospels to show what you believe is the true teaching of the nature of God. So that's what I do when it comes to um, their claim about the Trinity, is I point them to the, point them to the Gospels, if they accept what the Gospels say, which by the way is you know the words of Jesus, who they have to believe in, and that's great. Uh, if they don't because they think it's corrupted, I use that tactic to get that objection off the table. 
and then to go back to the gospels and see and show them what it says. That's good. So that's the general approach. Start with the gospels and end with the gospel. You know? Yeah, I appreciate that. Hopefully that kind of got people thinking as well as maybe uh, interested in learning more about that. Because I think, again, how many Christians uh, not only can explain the Trinity, but then even point out verses to defend the Trinity and, and to show why we believe the Trinity is true. I think a lot of times it's like, ah, this is very difficult to understand kind of punt a mystery in a sense. So um, it's not there right now, but if you want, I have some videos. Uh, I'll put some videos below in the description that uh, are like three minute videos each. I did like a three part or four part series on the Trinity. I'll put those there so you can check those out as well as subscribe again, because that interview coming up with Fred Sanders is going to be an awesome conversation. Um, so Alan, I, again, I, I alluded at the beginning uh, that you, you've traveled the world. Uh, you spent time in kind of Middle Eastern countries in Egypt, uh, teaching and training. Um, how, and you've also even mentioned that you take time with students uh, to, to train them in Islam and you go to mosque and you go to do street evangelism. Uh, do you kind of have maybe a, a final word of encouragement uh, to those who are saying, man, I, this has kind of motivated me. I, I, I maybe want to find a way to engage uh, some Muslims who are in my life, maybe my neighbor, my coworker, um, maybe a final word of encouragement to that person uh, as they start this journey. Yeah, I would say um, you should do it because um, it's actually a lot easier than you think because these people typically, not all, but many Muslims come from a more collectivistic culture, a more um, honor shame sort of culture. And for them to befriend you and be kind and respectful to you is of a high value to them. And so they're typically very welcoming people and very hospitable. I mean, uh, like you were saying, I go to, you know, I've been to Egypt, I've been to Lebanon, I go to the West Bank and, you know, talk to Palestinians. And I've been to many places. And whenever I've been there, even though they know I'm a Christian, I'm welcomed. They bring me inside. They cook an amazing meal for me. They're super hospitable, super warm, super friendly people. Um, and although they are very passionate about what they believe, and sometimes that passion can sound more intimidating, generally speaking, they're very respectful people. And I think you'll enjoy it. And it'll not only build your own faith up, but it'll give you an opportunity to be an ambassador for Jesus uh, to these people who desperately need to know the truth. That's wonderful. And if you have gotten to this point of the conversation and maybe you're motivated by it, but you say, hey, I man, I, I don't know any Muslims. I, I don't know that, that. Uh, but you want to learn maybe about the people who are coming to your house, like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, those videos are posted in the description as well. If you want to learn on how to reach your Mormon or Jehovah's Witness neighbor. And, and my interview with on Jehovah's Witnesses was with Tim's, or not Tim, it's with Tim, Alan's colleague, Tim Barnett. Uh, Alan, is, uh, does Tim know some stuff about Jehovah's Witnesses? Yeah, he does. <laughs> is, is he a good source on that? All right. He is a good source, yeah. Yeah, all right. So if you uh, are interested in maybe learning about other religions, people you do have more interaction with, you can check out those interviews as well to to learn more there. But um, Alan, thank you so much for taking the time. It was great seeing you again and and uh, interacting. And uh, I know that this has been a blessing. And, and thank you for taking the time to help us have a better understanding of Islam, but more so not just learn it to learn it, but to challenge us to know our own faith as well as live it out in being ambassadors for Christ and reaching Muslims with the gospel. So thank you, Alan. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, if you enjoy this conversation, uh, please subscribe, please like, please follow. There's going to be more conversations like this with my goal in helping you know, defend, and faithfully live out the Christian worldview. Again, you can watch those interviews on Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons if you interact with them more, as well as the other interviews that are coming up. Next week is on immigration, a biblical approach to immigration, what the Bible has to say about that with Daniel Carroll. Uh, the week after that, I think, is the uh, conversation, or maybe the week after that is Thanksgiving. 
Thanksgiving, but then the next conversation is going to be on the Trinity. And then following that is a conversation about the divisiveness actually of our culture and how to live well with people who you disagree with. And so there's going to be the conversations coming up. If you're interested in those, uh, share this uh, or subscribe and then share this with friends if you thought this was an encouragement to you. So thank you all so much for joining. Have a wonderful rest of your day and God bless. Bye, everybody. Won't hesitate to follow your love will guide my